Hello, everyone. Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Courtney. And I'm Patrick. Welcome back. Yeah, again. Again. This episode would have Remake. been This episode would have been out a whole lot sooner, but we spent what two hours recording it last week and went to edit it and the audio was just trash. Computer decided to change a whole bunch of settings on itself and we didn't know that until we listened to it. It's it a just, ghost. It's a it ghost. Doo doo. I couldn't it's fix it. A pod lab ghost. Yeah. A little pudding pod ghost. Anyways, that's that's some heartache right there. Like having a good episode, recording it, and then Coconut is not happy that we have to re-record it. No, she's not. She's unhappy in general. Uh, that Coconut is our dog, by the way, and she is a great Pyrenees, and they are bred to basically live outside and like wrangle wild or, like livestock and stuff. She won't go outside but, if it's wet. It's been downpouring here all day, and you have to literally take her out with an umbrella <laughs> and, and give she, her a snacky. She's also sad because it warmed back up because it was freezing temps last week. She loves the cold. And now she was just staying outside. Oh, she she's like in her element, but it can't be damp. It has to be dry cold. It has to be a dry cold, and she just lets the breeze blow through her hair, and she's a happy camper. <laughs> Pretty much. But anyway, I digress. Let's go ahead and get right into it. Yeah. Um. Usually, Patrick. The cases are a surprise to you, but unfortunately, we've been through this. I know this one. <laughs> you know this one because we recorded it listened once. Listened to it two days ago, three days ago. So let's try this again, shall we? Let's do it. Unfortunately, we are dealing with the murder of a child today, you guys, which you know that we hate covering. But I felt that this one was super important to shed some light on. On November 14th, 1997. 14-year-old Rena Verk was invited by her two so-called friends to a party with the cool kids behind the Shoreline Middle School in Saanich, which is a municipality in Vancouver Island, British Columbia. I want to so, say Sandwich every time you I say I do, too. It. I, it was so funny you said that because that's how I remember how to pronounce it is Sandwich, but it's Saanich with an N. So we're in Canada today. Canada. Back to Canada. Rena, a troubled teenager who had withstood years of relentless bullying and was just seeking acceptance, she happily attended this party. It was a decision that would ultimately result in her brutal murder. It was after this party that a group of over 16 teenagers, all between the ages of 14 and 16, so children, would collectively swarm Rena, attacking her. Not just attacking her, but torturing her in ways that would make a seasoned adult criminal shudder. And ultimately, Rena would end up dead, murdered in the most horrific of manners. Later, when Rena's battered body was discovered, an autopsy determined that her cause of death would be drowning. However, any one of the numerous head and bodily injuries that she had sustained prior to her drowning would have been enough to kill her. So who was Rena Virk, and what would drive a group of children to kill one of their peers in such a vile and brutal manner? Today we will be discussing the extremely sad case that shook the whole of North America in the late 90s. A case of extreme bullying, the likes I have just never seen before. And I have to warn you, this one is going to shake you to your core. It's tragic from start to finish, and although it's a tough listen, This case will surely stick with me forever, as I'm sure it will you. So without further ado, let's dive into the absolutely senseless and tragic murder of 14-year-old Rena Virk. Rena Virk was born on March 10, 1983, in Saanich, British Columbia. Her mother, Suman, was from an Indo-Canadian family, and her dad, Manjeet, was actually an immigrant from India. That's crazy, because she would have roughly been the same age as us. Yeah, that was the year I was born. It's a good year. And what I thought was actually kind of sweet, Suman had been raised as a Jehovah's Witness, so when Manjeet met her, he was so smitten with her that he converted. So you have to be in love to change religions, in my opinion. Oh, for sure. Now, Rena was the eldest of three children, and she was raised in a quiet middle-class suburb called View Royal, which at the time was predominantly an upper-class neighborhood. According to the book, Kids Who Kill, which I know it's not a wonderful name, but I'll I'll link it in the show notes. 
Quote, for the first eight years of her life, Rena is a happy child. She is loud, boisterous, and outgoing. However, around this time, she starts putting on weight, and children at school begin to tease her, and she finds herself on the fringe with new friends, a scenario that follows her into her adolescence in high school. The more her peers bully and ostracize her, the more she craves their acceptance and yearns to belong. So, like many of us, Raina didn't feel as if she fit in, and one could argue that she, in fact, did not fit in, but more than just because of her weight. Not only was she dealing with peer pressure to look a certain way and conform to certain what beauty standards, like we all feel as preteens. Especially from fourth grade to ninth right, grade. Right, exactly. Her Indian family lived in a predominantly white neighborhood, and they were also practicing Jehovah's Witnesses. And that was not too common in that area at the time. So one could argue that Rena must have felt like a minority within a minority almost, you know? For sure. And we know how kids are, right? Oh, yeah. Kids don't understand a lot of these religions. They just see like Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. And they're like, they're weird people. Like they're different people. than me. They're weird. They're different than Everything me. Everything yeah. different is weird. And especially when it comes into religions, then religions are weird or cultish or whatever it is. So it's just... Well, anything different to a kid, you know, like we said, that was my next point. We always say this, kids can be dicks. Whatever is different than what they're used to in their day-to-day life, they're going to, they're not going to understand that they're going to bully it. Yeah, they're going to make fun of it. They can be dicks. But at this time, Rena was continuing, she was keeping on, keeping on. She continued to persevere and she handled the bullying quite well. See, Rena really wanted to become a nurse one day. So she decided to channel all of her energy into volunteering at a hospital and reading to the elderly patients and young children. And her favorite patients were the babies and the toddlers, of course. She loved kids, and she was so good with them. But as the bullying escalated at school, Rena's bubbly, sweet personality began to morph into an angry, moody, and angsty preteen. And eventually, Rena just slipped into a full-on depression. I was going to say, you can, only, you can only channel stuff like that so much until it just gets too much. You can much. only turn the other cheek so much. And yeah. especially at that age, mm-hmm. you're already having like... It gets to you. I don't care how strong you are. And you're already changing emotionally and mentally and you're already having trouble. It's not an easy age, the preteen years, to begin with. No, especially And then you add on just vicious bullying, you know, that never never lets up. It's even worse for the girls than it is the guys at that age. Eventually, Rena's parents picked up on exactly why Rena was suffering because of all the bullying and hate she had been receiving. So in May of 1994, the family actually picked up and transferred, they moved and transferred Rena to a different school called Burnside Elementary. And they did this in hopes that things would improve for their daughter and the bullying would stop. So they actually uprooted their lives and the other two kids and they said, look, we're going to try somewhere else. You yeah, know? I mean, and the, the other two kids are younger, so they're early elementary at the mm-hmm. latest. So, I mean, they tried to do what was best for her to give her a good start so she wouldn't. Absolutely. It says a lot for them, in my opinion. They're willing to uproot their lives. And move their child to try to give her a fresh start. This whole freaking story says a lot about them. And for <laughs> facts. And for a while things were looking up and Rena was slowly starting to become more like her old self. She had even found a few new friends and Rena's parents felt that things were getting back to normal. However, the children at Rena's new school began to bully her relentlessly yet again. And unfortunately her new friends turned against her. Rena and her family were once again distraught. And in 1996, Rena graduated elementary school and began attending Colquitt's Middle School, I believe is how you say it. So she went on to junior high school. Yep. And it was here that Rena started to hang out with the, quote, cool kids. You know, we all know the type. Oh, yeah. They stay out past their curfew. They drink. Their parents stolen liquor or wherever they can find it. They smoke some cigarettes and maybe some weed here and there. You know, that kind. I know that kind all too well. (laughs) Well, Rena began hanging out with her newfound friends. And as you can imagine, her parents greatly disapproved, as many of us would. But in Rena's eyes, these kids had something she didn't. They had the freedom that she was craving. Remember, her parents are strict Jehovah's Witnesses. So... There was no staying out past curfew and no substances allowed, right? Yeah, and I, you know, culturally too, they're also both Indian, so you don't know, you know, culturally sometimes Indian families can be stricter or certain cultures can be stricter 
than others. Right, more so you strict. Don't know if that on top of the religious beliefs was making it even more strict for her. But and I could say for us as parents, that behavior wouldn't fly, and we're neither Jehovah's Witness nor you know any of anything else. It's just. It just wouldn't fly with us, no, as, but, as most parents, I would assume. Of course, but you, you know, the, the, the story lends itself to maybe that they were stricter just based off of their religion or right. their, their cultural beliefs or whatever it may be. Well, Raina confided in one of these friends, and she expressed just how much she wanted some more freedom at home. As a, every right, a very junior high kid does. A very typical feeling that most teenage girls have. I'm sure she isn't the first one to complain to her friends about her strict parents. <laughs> Literally, we have one in the other room that does this. So. <laughs> and, I mean, I remember doing that. However, this friend told Rena, hey, if you call child services, so, like, their CPS, and tell them that your parents are abusive, then you won't have to deal with your parents anymore. Horrible I would idea. give the child a reason to call child. I wouldn't. I would want to give the child a reason to call child services if they did something like that. That's Goodness insane. Goodness gracious. Do not recommend that. But unfortunately, Rena not only took this advice, but she took it a step further. Uh, Rena made a mistake here. Uh, she told authorities that her father had been sexually abusing her. Rena was taken from the Virk household and sent to live with her grandparents. And Manjeet Virk was actually taken into custody and Poor interrogated. Um, I do want to get this out of the way, just because when I was reading about this, I was like, oh my God, did he? Uh, it is very clear that Manjeet was eventually cleared of all abuse charges, sexual and otherwise. And Rena would later on admit to lying to the authorities. Yeah. I just wanted to go ahead and get that out of the way but that's, early that's on. The thing about that is once you put it out there, that's not – you can be clear to the charges. You can be dismissed and everything's not unfounded, but it's out there now. As as you well know, I mean, because this story, it, it, we go back into it yeah, down I mean, the it's, road. It's out there. It doesn't it's matter. It's out there. The damage is done. You know, and we're not victim blaming it all. This girl was 13 years old when she did this. No, but, but she this made a mistake. Now, he's out there that he – even if he never did and it's clear that he never sexually yeah. or otherwise abused his daughter – it's out there that he did. Yeah. And, you know, she was desperate, looking for approval, and she made a mistake. And this is not, you know, victim shaming at all. It's just no, it's very much part of the story. And just, you'll see, you'll see why. It's that out there. It is. It's upsetting for everybody. But as you, I mean, we're upset by this, but you can imagine the state of the Virk family now. They were just in shambles. Rena, now 13, she just went ahead and continued to live with her grandparents for a time while her father was under investigation. But much to Rena's dismay, her grandparents also had fairly stringent, strict rules. She had a curfew and restrictions there as well, and she didn't like that. No way. You mean yeah. the parents that raised the parents that were putting restrictions on her had restrictions? Right. So Rena told her social worker that she no longer feels comfortable living with her grandparents, you know, and... The authorities responded by moving her out of her grandparents' home and into a foster home in West uh, Victoria. Yeah, I don't. I, I, this part of the, like, I get that she wants more freedom, but I never understand it because it's like, what do you think is going to happen to you? You're eventually going to end up in a group home. Like, yeah, that is not somewhere you want to end up. But she didn't know that. You know, she didn't know that. She know. she knows that the kids. You know, and spoiler alert: the kids that she's hanging out with at school, they live in a group home and in foster care, and they have freedom. And she looks at that as the ultimate goal here. She just wants freedom to go and hang out with her friends when she wants. You know. Well, one evening, Rena came back to her foster home from being out late with friends, and she tells her foster mother that she had been assaulted on the walk home. So the foster mom does what anybody would do. They call the police, and the police look closer into the allegation, and they just find zero evidence that an assault had occurred. I, I believe what happened was Rena had been out. This is just Courtney's opinion, so take, take it with a grain of salt. I believe that Rena got home late and perhaps got in trouble. Oh, for sure. And she she may have come up with a story. She was because police. I mean, there was no mark on her. There was the description kind of, you know, faltered here and there. And she's made up stories to get what she wanted before. She didn't want to get in trouble for being late or breaking curfews. So she's like, oh yeah, I right. jumped. Yeah, I think that's what happened. But it was after the police investigated the alleged assault. Um, when that turned up empty, 
the allegations against Rena's father, Manjit, were officially dropped, and Rena ended up now coming clean and confessing that she had lied to authorities about her father's abuse in order to get more freedom. So after this, Rena decided to go back home and make amends, and her parents agreed to take her back, and they could all work on rebuilding their relationship. Right. But unfortunately, Rena was still hanging out with the same rough crowd as before. She even told her parents that she belonged to a gang. Of course, there's no proof that this was ever the case at all. And this forced, but this did force Rena's parents to become even more strict with her. Like, I'm not really sure what the goal was. The West Side Sandwich Gang? (laughs) (laughs) Well, knowing how to work the system, Rena wasn't going to put up with her parents' rules. So she announced one day that she wanted to go back into foster care. And in November of 1997, she was placed in the Kiwanis Emergency Youth Center in Victoria. And it is here that she meets two key players in the story, Nicole Cook and Missy Grace Plyke. This this was just eight weeks before her death, by the way. Okay, so 14-year-old Rena is now living in foster care once again. But one Friday night on November 14th, she decided to come home and spend the night with her family. I guess she's able to kind of bounce back and forth at her leisure. Which it's basically her choice that she wanted to back yeah. to foster care. And her parents were probably like, hey, you just, you know, come back whenever you want. We want you home. Check so in, yeah. They were probably just welcoming anytime she wanted to just hop by the house. The Vert family that night, they had dinner together. And then Rena went, uh, she retreated to her bathroom to take a bath. And as she's running her bathwater, Nicole Cook, Rena's acquaintance from the foster care, calls and tells Rena that they're having a party and Rena is invited. However, this is odd because Nicole and Rena have been having some big issues, lots of drama in their friendship lately. Okay, so I'm going to kind of go over this we'll drama. Spill the tea, please. Spill the tea. Okay, see, in foster care, Rena read Nicole's diary, which is a huge, huge no-no. And she found, Rena found Nicole's private phone book before taking it upon herself to call several of the boys listed in the phone book. In particular, one boy that Nicole really liked, really liked. And if you don't know, back in the 90s, we did not have cell phones where we could store all of our contacts. We had our little address book with (laughs) names and phone numbers. So Rena found that and apparently called a boy that Nicole liked. Allegedly, Rena had even asked this boy out, and Nicole did not look too kindly on that. So, Nicole finds this out and gets two of her friends, one boy and one girl, to call Rena and threaten her. The kid on the other end of the line tells Rena that they're from the Crips gang and that Rena should definitely watch her back. They watched too much MTV in the 90s. Yeah, this is very much a 90s This is very thing. much right after the L.A. riots yeah. and N.W.A. Right, and right, right. The rap took off, so everyone's like, oh, bloods and crips. So Rena figures that all this drama, it has to be coming from her friend Nicole. And the situation just escalates in typical teenage fashion from there. Rumors are started from both Rena and Nicole about each other, and this goes on for several days. So you can see why Rena is so leery about Nicole calling her up at home and being like, hey, you want to come to this party? Hey, girl, what's <laughs> up? You want to come hang out? So Rena is like, absolutely not. She declines this invitation, but then Nicole puts uh, Rena's other friend, Missy, as in Missy Grace Pike, on the line. And Missy assures Rena that nothing shady is being planned. And they just want Rena to come out and have some fun with them and make amends. You know, put all the drama behind them. Yeah, right? that would be believable, right? Because if you're beefing with your friend or you and your friend aren't getting along and the other friend that you're still good with is like, hey, look, it's... It's nothing is going to happen. Up and up. Yeah. Just trying to squash all the bullshit. And, and have some fun. And like we had said before, at 14 years old... The last thing that's on your mind when you're invited out. Are you plotting a vicious assault on my life? That's not the first thing <laughs> on your mind, right? That your friends are going to. You're thinking they might pull up. Murder on you. you. Or try to embarrass you in front of a boy. The worst or... case scenario is maybe you'll be embarrassed, humiliated, something, but you're not going to be in fear for your life when no, you're up hanging out with other 14 year olds. No. But unfortunately, Rena was so desperate and in need of fitting in and being accepted that she agreed to join them. And. Not her fault. I probably would have done the same thing, to be honest. But it it would have been a life-altering decision. About 7.30 on this Friday night, Rena meets up with Nicole and Missy in front of the nearby Walmart 
at the town and country shopping center against her parents' wishes, of course. But she don't care. Yeah. From there, the three girls take a bus to Shoreline Secondary School, or another junior high school, as we call it here, (laughs) where an illegal party is being held on the school grounds. When they arrive, there were already a large group of teens. We're talking like between 20 and 30 teens, drinking and smoking and having a good time, all completely oblivious that a brutal crime is being planned. We talked about this before. It's just so weird that they're just partying at the school. At a school, yeah. It's the last place I'd want to go party and think about doing it because, I mean, don't the cops always go check on the schools and stuff anyway? Always. But they don't care. They clearly. So the party continues on for a while, and the more intoxicated the teens become, the more rowdy they get, as we know. And at some point, some of the kids start to vandalize the school, which, of course, alerted the police. And the police come and make the youngsters move on. One of them broke a window. Of course, they're all sitting there getting drunk and high, and they're... Yeah, student school. Heck yeah. And then, then, you know, it just escalates. One drunk kid and another drunk kid just turns into bad news. Nobody gets arrested. The police just show up and they're like, hey, wrap it up. That's you also know? crazy to me, too. That, that nobody got arrested. Like, hey, stop. <laughs> so as everyone is dispersing, Nicole and Missy coerce Rena into buying them cigarettes, to which Rena agrees. Rena looks a bit older. She's taller. She just looks a bit older than them. So Rena goes and purchases a pack of cigarettes at a convenience store called Max, which is located right near the Craig Flower Bridge. Rena, on her way back from purchasing the cigarettes, overhears a girl in her group named Kelly Ellard, remember that name, say something along the lines of, you know, I'm only here tonight because I was asked to beat someone up. That's what Rena hmm. hears Kelly say. Well, Rena's antennas go up immediately, and she realizes that Kelly is most likely referring to her. And to avoid a fight with Kelly, Rena runs to a payphone outside of Mac's convenience store. At 9 p.m., Rena makes a phone call to her house from that payphone, and her little brother, Amon, answers, and she tells him that she's going to be home within the hour. And that's kind of unlike her, right? Yes, hey, I'm, I'm going to be home. I've just got to get my, the bus, and I'll be home. So she hangs up with Amon, and Rena then heads towards the direction of the bus stop to wait for the bus. As Rena's walking, Nicole and Missy catch up with her and insist that Rena go with them under the Craig Flower Bridge to smoke a cigarette. Reluctantly, Rena agrees to this, and when she arrives under the bridge with Nicole and Missy, she sees a group of 16 teenagers, 14 girls and two boys, all waiting for her. She had effectively been led into a trap. Immediately, Nicole begins swearing at Rena, yelling accusations at her, accusing her of going through her diary and talking to boys that she liked. And then Missy Plight joined in and began to verbally abuse Rena. Nicole, she makes the first physical move. She takes out a lit cigarette, the very cigarette that Rena had just bought for her, and stubs it out on Rena's forehead. Ow. God. In self-defense, Rena strikes out to Nicole and begins to run to a set of stairs nearby. And near those stairs, Kelly Ellard, who, by the way, is a stranger to Rena, like she has literally never met Rena or seen Rena. And she has been invited to this party for the sheer purpose of hurting her. Well, she blocks Rena's path to escape. Six other girls, to include Nicole and Missy, are now surrounding Rena. And in unison, all of the girls start to punch and kick her. And she's just struggling at this point just to remain upright. Yeah. Although Rena is severely outnumbered, a 16-year-old boy by the name of Warren Glowowski, a boy who has never even met Rena, joins in. Rena is continually kicked, punched, stomped, slapped, you name it. Warren supposedly kicks Rena in the face at least five times. Rena tries her very best to protect her face, just at the very least. That's all you can do. But by now, her nose is streaming blood, and both of her eyes are swollen shut. This was just a beyond brutal attack by a mob of 14 to 16-year-olds. Remember, nobody is over the age of 16 here. Thankfully, a group of onlookers shout for the mob to stop. Stop the beating. They're like, chill out. 
I think she's had enough. You know, this is way more than was agreed to. Everyone stops other than Kelly and Nicole, Kelly Ellard and Nicole Cook. They proceed to drag Rena down the stairs where they sit Rena up against a rock wall. Kelly then hits Rena in the head and the face and then uses her knee to do more damage to the poor girl's face. So she's mm. kneeing her in the head. And just when we think we couldn't get any worse, Nicole rummages through Rena's backpack and finds a book of matches. And this is just awful and terrifying. Nicole then proceeds to try to light Rena on fire, specifically Rena's hair. But luckily, although painful, it was unsuccessful. Yeah. So Rena is allowed to haul her battered and bruised body towards the north end of the bridge to try to get away. But guys, it's important to note here that 16 teenagers are now watching this horror inflicted on Rena, and not one tries to help her in any way. Not one. None of them did. But for now, the fight is over, and people feel like they have seen what they came here to see. They got their money's worth, so to speak. So people just start to leave and make their way back home and get on with their lives. Yeah. To include Nicole Cook and Missy Pike the original instigators of the group. So Nicole and Missy leave. However, not everyone has gone home. There are two stragglers left behind, and those two are Warren Glowowski and Kelly Ellard. Remember, they don't even know Rena. They don't even know this girl. So they're standing there, and they're watching Rena attempt to make her way to safety. And Warren claims that he looked over at Kelly and Kelly kind of gave an evil smile back to him. He would later on say that, quote, he knew exactly what he want, what she wanted to do. The two asshole teens then approached Rena, and this breaks my heart, but Rena cried out to them to go away, and they said, no, no, we're here to help you. And of course, they absolutely had no intention of helping her. No. But they led her to believe that she had some hope. So Warren and Kelly held Rena's hands and led her down to the grassy bank right along the water. Kelly then told Rena to remove her shoes and jacket, which Rena did, most likely still thinking that they were going to help her. Right. But then, but then without any warning, Kelly starts beating Rena yet again. And beating isn't a strong enough word. A coroner would later state, quote, the small intestines had come away from her muscle wall and her injuries were more consistent with a car crash than a fight. That's crazy. Her body withstood some horrific damage. It's like a beating. So as if Rena isn't in bad enough shape, Warren soon joins in, and they take turns literally jumping on this poor girl's chest. So Rena's now laying down, face up, and they're crushing her chest, taking turns. Kelly then drags Rena to a nearby tree, grabs Rena's head and smashes it into a tree trunk. This causes Rena to pass out, which I'm shocked that she hadn't already Lost passed out, but yeah, yeah. this causes her to lose consciousness. So Warren and Kelly drag Rena's unresponsive body down to the river. And while they do this, Rena's pants get pulled down. This pair of sick, twisted psychopaths actually take a second to make fun of Rena's body hair. Remember, they don't even know her. At this point, they're just doing all this for kicks. Like, yeah, this is a, a sick thrill. There's no end game here other than getting a thrill. Exactly. They have no beef personally with her. They're animals. They're just enjoying the beating. As they submerge Rena into the water, the salt water starts to seep into Rena's open wounds. And the pain is so agonizing that it jolts her into consciousness. And she begins to struggle. But about this time, Warren spots some police cars up in the distance. So he begins to urge Kelly, hurry up, finish her off. He's telling her that so that they don't get caught because Rena's now screaming, struggling. Right. Without a second thought, Kelly uses the palm of her hand, kind of the side of her hand, to smash Rena's windpipe. It would later be discovered that Rena's thorax was crushed up against her spine, <laughs> which is vicious. That's awful. Then, in a final act of cruelty, and I mean, I don't, I can't even fathom this. Kelly rolls Rena onto her belly so that she's face first into the water, submerged in water, 
And get this, Kelly holds Rena's head underwater with her foot while she just smokes a cigarette. And after several minutes pass, Kelly releases Rena, who is now dead, and her body proceeds to float downstream. It's wild. Like, not even a human, like, animals don't even kill each other like that. No. It's just unfathomable, it's you know? Ridiculous. And, they're only, and again, they're only 15, 16 years old. They're children. <laughs> Kelly Eller, by the way, yeah, to my next point, is 15 years old. A child on paper, but seemingly just as evil as any of the adults we have ever covered on this channel. Anybody. And I'm sorry, I keep smacking my hand on the table, <laughs> but it just, I'm just mind boggled over this child yeah, it's ridiculous. this literal child acting like this monster well she is a monster she's a monster so the next morning when rena didn't come home remember they were expecting her home within the hour yeah and this, that's not something she normally does yeah call. she's not so gonna call and be like hey that she called and said i'm coming home in an hour and then she doesn't come home you're gonna be like what the hell is going on so the, yeah they probably knew something was okay something's up right the vert family the next morning they were tremendously worried so just after 7 a.m., Rena's mom, Suman, she phones the foster care system to check to see if her daughter's there. Maybe she went there mm-hmm. instead of coming home, but she wasn't. So then she proceeds to call Nicole because Suman knew that Nicole was with Rena the night before. Nicole tells Suman that she did, in fact, see Rena at the party the previous night, but she just has no idea where Rena is now. And Nicole said that. She had gone back to her foster home just after her 11 o'clock curfew, but Reno wasn't with her. And she's not really lying at this point. I mean, she said this whole yeah, thing Yeah, technically up, that's... she's not lying because they left. That's they far. didn't know the other two went back or stayed. Another day goes by with no word from Rena. So, Suman and Majit attempt to call the Sandwich Police Department. And this is really sad. But unfortunately, because Rena had such a spotty history with the police... They were not overly helpful right off the bat. Who's the boy who cries wolf? Like, yeah. This girl's made multiple fake police reports and allegations against people that they're like, whatever, it's this girl again. Yeah. So they just reassured the Verks that she would most likely show up soon. However, that was, of course, of little assurance to a mother. And Suman would later say that she felt in her soul that Arena was gone. And I totally... I totally believe that a mother would just know. I believe in that mother-child connection, and Suman absolutely knew that her daughter was no longer of this world. You know, well, she knew something was horrifically something wrong was horrifically her, wrong. Happened, yeah. And unfortunately, Suman's worst fears came true. The day after the murder, Kelly Ellard, who is the one who ultimately would end up killing Rena, she calls Nicole and Missy and tells them to go to the scene of the murder and clean up any evidence that they could find. She's something else, right? Like she's like a little mafia boss. So Nicole and Missy, I'm I'm saying this because they obviously now know that there's a murder. Nicole and Missy. She didn't even hide it. She wasn't like, hey, we left some stuff back there. Let's clean it up. She was like, no, dead girl. Yeah. Go get her stuff. Go get her stuff. So Nicole and Missy know. And they hop to it. They go down um, to the river and they find Rena's shoes. They take them to a dumpster in Victoria. They throw them away, and then they return to their group home. So it's safe to say that although they may have not been present at the time of Rena's murder, they sure as hell knew about it after the fact, and even assisted in attempting to conceal evidence. Now they're guilty of conspiracy after the fact, or accessory after the fact. Okay, so the next Monday following Rena's murder, rumors are rampant around school about what happened to Rena. Everyone in school know, now knows, thanks to the efforts of Suman and Manjit, that Rena is missing. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a talk of the school how they jumped this girl, set her up, and beat her ass, right? Yeah. So everyone just knows that, you know, they're missing. And to your point, Pat, that may surprise you or may not, that Kelly Ellard begins to brag in school that Monday that she had committed her first murder. And she tells anyone who would listen that it was her who would kill Rena. And she even divulges how she did it. Like she's proud of it. But this is a hard pill to swallow for her peers. No one's believing her. And that's really pissing her off. So after school, Kelly Ellard takes her friend, a girl named Shondell, to the very spot where she killed Rena just days earlier. She even shows Shondell the tree where she smashed Rena's head. It's It's just beyond me. So let's backtrack real quick and recap. The whole school has heard that Rena is dead. 
at least 16 youths at the school witnessed Rena being brutalized on the night that she went missing. One student has even been taken to the crime scene, and not one of these little assholes even considered going to the police or to a teacher, anything, nothing, telling somebody. Didn't say shit. So the days go by, and Rena's parents contact the police department again, expressing their concern that their daughter is still nowhere to be found. The police still weren't willing to spring into action. That is, until on November 19th, when two sisters walked into the Oak Bay Police Department. They claimed that they lived in the same group home as Nicole Cook and Missy Plyke. They say that Nicole and Missy were acting very suspiciously and that they truly believed that Rena Burke was indeed dead. Only then did police start conducting interviews with the 16 youths that they believed were somehow involved in Rena's disappearance. And this was before her body was even discovered. Right. So they don't even know that there is, in fact, a, a body. They didn't have a body. Can you imagine those interviews? What a mess and a nightmare they were. 16 different stories from 16 different kids. Yeah. Oh, it's just a mess. On November 21st, police finally conducted a search at the George Waterway. In poor visibility, divers would find Rena's body face down. She had been submerged in the water by now for eight days. Suman and Manjit were absolutely heartbroken and in total denial that the life of their daughter was cut short before she even had the opportunity to really live. Their family had been through such difficult times with Rena, and Rena was taken from them before any of that could be mended, and it absolutely broke the Virk family. Oh, I bet. It would break any family. Any family. And this is where the case takes an even more of a heartbreaking turn. The media, of course... They got a hold of the death of Rena, and in true media fashion, the Virk family, before they even got a chance to grieve their loss, became the target of a media smear campaign. And vultures. They got a hold of the old reports that Rena had made against her father. So along with trying to wrap their minds around losing their daughter, they are now being ripped apart on TV and on the front page of local newspapers, not only for the abuse allegations, but for, the, for their culture and their religion. Like, I can't even imagine. It's ridiculous. Even their close relatives stop speaking to them. Shame with the media. They're alone sick. on an island. Their family's not even talking to them. It's going to be started on the media. They're truly in pure hell. They're being demonized during the most painful time of their life. And to add salt to the wound, Suman was asked to go down and identify the body of her daughter. And I know that this may be very typical, but it just it's just so painful to read. Well, Suman walks up, identifies Rena, and she asks the medical examiner, examiner if she can kiss her. And the request was denied. And this shattered me. All of it just shatters me. But I know that that was just like She's just final. trying to say goodbye to her. Yeah. Okay, so police conducted a series of interviews with the 16 kids that they believed were involved. And the Monday after Rena's body, or the Monday after Rena's body was discovered, eight of the kids, ranging in ages from 14 to 16, appeared before the Victorian Juvenile Court, all facing a range of charges. Out of those eight, seven of them were girls. Six of the youngest were accused. They can't be named due to Canada's Young Offenders Act. But the media would soon dub them the Shoreline Six because the media likes to give bad people really cool names. Catch you cool names or somebody will read my story. Yeah. These six girls, all these six, all girls would be charged with assault. However, it would later be revealed who the main offenders of these six were. Kelly Ellard and Warren Globotsky. They both face murder charges. Well, they killed her. Yeah. So let's briefly get into the trials. Among the 16 char- 16s charged with assault are Nicole Cook and Missy Plyke, the two masterminds behind the attack. Not the murder, but right. the attack. They, they planned the attack. They didn't plan her to murder. During the trial, all six youths, that's really hard to say, six youths. Youths. <laughs> youths. <laughs> they had a joint trial. So Nicole, Missy, and the other girls, they all were tried together as a group. Neither Nicole nor Missy showed any emotion when evidence was being presented. In fact, they were seen yawning out of boredom during the proceeding. Regardless of their lack of remorse, they, along with the four other girls, were found guilty. However, the judge, for some reason, only sentenced them to one year in custody and one year probation 
with a three-month credit for the time that they had spent in juvie awaiting their trial. So that's, that's pretty light, especially to me since Nicole and Missy had helped conceal the, the murder after. Yeah, I, uh, but you don't also, it doesn't go into a whole lot of detail. Maybe they helped provide statements against Missy. Maybe, yeah. And they said the, they won't bring him up on conspiracy charges or accessory charges. Kelly, yeah. Or I think it's Kelly. Yeah. They won't bring her them up on charges if they help her or help them, you know, get the other ones. Right. Simon, Rena's mother, was asked about how she felt about the sentencing, and she replied, quote, these girls have shown no, no remorse, end quote. But regardless of her feelings towards her daughter's assailants, she was seen hugging the accused families after the trial was over. She would later say, quote, I told them I'm sorry. We all have to go through this horrible ordeal. They frankly have to work really hard to turn their children around. So she's a far better person oh, for sure. than I would ever I be. fighting family members in the trial in the courtroom. Yeah, and you're going to see throughout the rest of this um, a great display of character on Suman's part, for sure, to say the very least. Okay, so now for Kelly Ellard and Warren Glowatsky's trials. And this is a journey. So I'm going to kind of give you a timeline of everything that went down, and it's a lot, so bear with me, please. In June of 1999, Warren Glowatsky was tried and convicted of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for seven years. Then on March 9th, 2000, Kelly Ellard was convicted of second-degree murder in an adult court where she was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for five years. But here's the infuriating part. In February of 2003, the British Columbia Court of Appeal announced that due to improprieties in the way Ellard was questioned during her first trial, a new trial would be ordered. So this means that Suman and Manjit have to sit through this all over again. A new trial. Apparently, during her first trial, the Crown Court asked Kelly on the stand why witnesses would lie about her, and that's apparently impermissible. So, a new trial was granted. Yeah, I mean, it's leading. It's, it's leading. Circ- yeah, it's it is. Substantial, subjective. I mean, it's just you're assuming. So, Kelly Allard had a second murder trial, and that began in June of 2004, and it goes on till the middle of July. And then, this is also infuriating, July 18th, 2004, a mistrial was declared in Ellard's second trial because the jury was deadlocked. Imagine Suman and Majit having to go through all of this all over again, but th- that's exactly what happened. And in February of 2005, a third trial was held, and in April, Ellard was found guilty of second-degree murder, but this time she is given an automatic life sentence with no parole for at least seven years. And this was, in fact, a stiffer sentence than her original one, which is serendipitous, in my opinion. (laughs) It's nice. So in prison, Warren Globowski, he did really well in prison. He even reached out to the Verks and asked for their forgiveness. And being of high character, the Verks met with him, which is mind-blowing to me. It's crazy. And spent quite a bit of time with him and ultimately forgave him for his involvement in their daughter's death. On July 20th, 2006, after serving nearly nine years of a life sentence, Warren Glowatsky was granted what's known as an unescorted temporary pass by the National Parole Board, which effectively moves him a step closer to becoming part of society. He could basically spend unsupervised time out of jail, I believe is what this means. Yeah, I don't know how exactly how it is in Canada. Yeah, I don't know the details. It's basically like he has to come back at a certain time or during the day or whatever it is, whatever the stipulations are. He can leave the jail on his own, but he has to, you know, check in or be back at certain times and he's got a, a, a you know, he can't drink, can't do drugs, can't do any of this stuff. Can't hang out with certain people. Right, right. And the Vert family 100% supported this decision. Then in 2010, Warren was granted full parole. Suman Verk was quoted as saying after Warren's parole, quote, we don't want to hear anything else about him. I hope this is the end and he truly has turned his life around. And that's a very emotionally mature statement, if you ask me. Oh, yeah. She's just, she's phenomenal. But she's also just saying, don't ask me about it. It's done. Mm-hmm. Chapter, that chapter is over with. And we'll kind of go back to that. So stick around. We'll circle back to that. But right now, let's get to Kelly Ellard. 
In 2006, Ellard appealed her conviction and asked for a fourth trial or an acquittal. That meant that the Crown Court had the option to appeal, hold a fourth trial, or abandon prosecution altogether. The Supreme Court of Canada said no way, and they reinstated the second-degree murder conviction against Kelly Ellard, which thankfully would put an end to Rena's legal case altogether. And this this is a case that ended up spanning more than a decade, which is far too long That's for a family have to, to have to go through this. Then in 2016, Kelly raised some eyebrows when, despite serving a life sentence, she turned up pregnant. Mm. The father was a man with gang links who was out on day parole when he was allowed to have intimate visits with Ellard. Conjugal visits, yeah. if you will. His name is Darwin Darazan, I believe is how you say it. And he was 41, and he was eventually granted full parole, but his parole had since been revoked after an alleged breach. But he was then released after serving out his sentence. Now, in 2017, Ellard was up for full parole, but she was denied. However, due to good behavior, she was granted day parole, just like uh, Warren was initially. And during this time, Kelly found herself pregnant with her second child. I'm not sure when Kelly is up for parole again, however. It's looking quite promising for her because the parole board feels that motherhood has had a positive impact on Kelly's life. Bullshit. And it seems that Darwin, her boyfriend, the father of both of her children, he continues, you know, he's out and he continues to support Kelly and the kids. Last I heard, I know things change. So as far as I know, Kelly is currently still on day parole and she now goes by the name Kelly Marie Sim. And she would now be 41 years old, I believe. Changed her name. Changed her name, trying to stay low, low. And as far as the other two victims of this tragic story, Suman and Manjit Verk, what became of them? Suman went on to speak in various schools in Canada about the dangers of bullying, drawing awareness to the subject in honor of her daughter, Rena. She and her husband were such front men for the cause, in fact, that in 2009, they received the British Columbia's highest honor recognizing their contributions to community safety, the Anthony J. Holm Award of Distinction, which good for them. Yeah. After being presented publicly with the award, Suman says, quote, I never thought we would be doing this type of work, but we felt very passionately and very strongly that we wanted to learn from our tragedy. In 2011, Suman was contracted by the conservative government and asked to speak in support of youth justice provisions in the omnibus crime bill, C-10. So she pushed political reform for years following the death of her daughter. But tragically, you guys, in 2018, 58-year-old Suman was eating at a cafe in Victoria when she began to choke. Her airways were blocked for several minutes, and as a result, Suman was unfortunately declared brain dead, and she eventually died. And it's so unexpected, and it just shocked everyone, especially her husband. And remember, she has surviving children. Oh, you got two it's other just kids. heartbreaking. Yeah, Rena was the oldest. The Victoria Police Sergeant Paul Brooks, founder of Youth for Change and Inclusion, says of Suman, quote, Suman, Ver- Suman Verk's willingness to touch the darkest, most horrific side of her life so that the other youths could be inspired to change the world around them showed such a great strength of character. She talked of forgiveness and moving forward with with grief. She was a great example of how to channel tragedy into something more positive, end quote. And I couldn't agree with the sentiment more. In fact, I'd like to mention that back when Warren was released on day parole for the first time, he tearfully walked out of the jail into the arms of Suman, who hugged him tightly and wished him well. She was quite the woman. And like I said, more of a woman than I would have been. I, mean, I more, don't more than most of us could have been. And I I don't think we know as parents how we would thankfully I hope we never know exactly. how we would behave in that situation, but we could only hope to be half the person that Suman was. She's quite the inspiration. Um, she just kept moving forward, you know. But yeah, this 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 one stuck with me, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous because so many people, so many people had so many chances and so many opportunities to prevent this from happening. Yeah, sixteen times over, this could have been stopped just at any moment. 
You know, at any point, Warren could have just pushed Kelly and been like, oh, no, 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 she's good. Just stop. Yeah. Any kid could have done that. Any kid could have pulled it away or helped her or walked Be- her away. Before or- the murder, even the beating, somebody yeah. could have told somebody, anybody. And, it, it, you know, even an adult, a nearby adult, something. And then that carried on till after when the rumors were going around school. Tell a teacher. Tell someone. And it just never happened. And it, it also carried on to the bullying. At what point? Are you like, I got to let up on these people, you know, that this girl, I'm making her life miserable. It was almost a game. Yeah, but they don't care. The ones doing it don't care. It's, they're, we, it's fun for them. We got to, we got to raise our children to look out for this stuff. Well, and they do nowadays. I mean, we were talking the nineties again. If any of us, hopefully all of us that lived in the nineties, remember the nineties were a brutal. If you got bullied, you got bullied. You either learn to deal with it or you learn to fight back. One of the two. One of the two. Yeah. It's you either took it and dealt with it, or you started swinging back. I mean, that's that's all there was to it. Yeah, and Suman, you know, she was she was working for change, and that's absolutely what we need. I hope I hope that we're better now. I know online bullying is a thing, but I hope we're in a better place than we were back then. You I know, hope so. especially for our kids' sake. That's yeah, different now, though. It's, everybody's God. behind a computer screen now. Everyone's real tough behind a computer, but. Yeah, back in the 90s, you wanted to bully someone or talk trash about them. You had to be willing to get punched in the face for it. Yeah. But, you know, we've covered um, a case before about bullying. I'll have to go back. I, f- I forget what we titled it. But it was a bullying case gone too far, and a young girl lost her life. And, you know, this was like, that was like two or three people involved. This was 16. That's crazy. And nobody said or did anything. That's mind-boggling to me. It's ridiculous. So, good God, <laughs> do better. Yeah, a little, <laughs> little bit, please. But thank you guys so much for your patience and um, with getting this episode out. Yeah, we fixed the problem though, so we're good. Speaking of do better, we need to do better. <laughs> we do, we're doing better now. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you guys so much, and we will be back and see you next time. We love you. Be good to each other.